Hello and welcome to Drinking with Visionaries, a podcast where we have nightcaps with daydreamers. My name is Trace Brady and I will be your host. For this next episode, we'll be joined by Corinne Kanimba. Corinne is an advocate working to free her father, Paul Rusesa Begina, who saved 1,268 lives during the Rwandan genocide. And so without further ado, I present Drinking with Visionaries, episode 13. Corinne, what's on your mind these days? So we've been rallying the support of a lot of politicians around the world, um, trying to get attention on my father's case. Um, In the upcoming weeks, um, there is going to be a summit between the African Union and the European Union. And so those last few days, we've been really just thinking about how best to um, use this summit as a way to bring more attention to my father's case and call for his immediate release. And uh, that's essentially what's been on my mind. Okay, so just for those who are completely unfamiliar with you and your dad and the case, uh, do you want to tell everybody a little bit about that? And then maybe uh, after you're done with that, you could tell us a little bit about like what the summit might look like, what's your role in that, all of those things? Yes, um, so uh, my name is uh, Karine Kanimba, and I'm the daughter of Paul Rusesabagina, who is the real life um, hero behind the movie Hotel Rwanda. Um, if you're familiar, if you're not familiar with the movie, um, it's about uh, my father's bravery during the genocide in Rwanda in 1994. Um, the movie portrayed his role. Uh, the actor Don Cheadle played his role during the genocide. And um, it showed how my father saved 1,268 lives um, by sheltering people in his hotel and using all the everything that he had in front of him, whether it was a phone or uh, money to bribe off the killers, um, everything possible in order to keep the people alive. And so this was portrayed in the film Hotel Rwanda. Um, unfortunately, um, last year, my father was kidnapped by the Rwandan government um, and brought to Rwanda forcefully where he was tortured um, and held in solitary confinement for days. He was denied his medication, denied all of his most basic human rights. And that only because a movie was made about him, making him, giving him more attention than the current dictator of Rwanda. And then he used that attention and the platform that he got from the movie to bring about more attention on the human rights abuses being perpetrated by this government. So they kidnapped him, put him in prison in order to silence him. Um, And so for the past year and a half, we've been trying to rally the support of the international community that knows about him, that followed his journey all these years to help and free him from the dictatorship, from the prison in Rwanda. Um, And the summit in the upcoming days then will be assembling leaders, African leaders, European leaders around the table in order to talk about the future of both continents. And we believe that my father, who is currently being held as a political prisoner by one of the leaders who will be present in the summit, um, my father should be on the, 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 the conversation about my father should be on the table and they should be finding a solution for his release. And so that is why we've been rallying the support of these officials um to get their um to get to help them pressure the Rwandan government to let my father go so you say the dictator will actually be at the summit is that right that's correct and have you had any personal interactions with him at all for me personally, no. Um, he has, however, been after my family uh, and uh, 
collectively for since the movie was released, really. Um, he has come after my father, has sent people to um, try to assassinate my father over the years. He's sent people to intimidate him when he would speak at universities or schools or conferences. Um, he would, I think one time he flipped over his car while my father was driving on the highway in, in Belgium. So this dictator has been around our lives for many years and actually um, last year, um, Amnesty International released a report, um, a forensics report that showed that my phone had been infected with the Pegasus software. Um, and so, and obviously the Rwandan government is the one who was spying on me on my phone. So I guess I have not interacted with this dictator directly, but he certainly has been following and listening to all of my conversations. Yeah. So clearly you've had enough interaction on the whole. <laughs> Wow. I don't even know like where to begin addressing that because it's such a unique situation to find yourself in. Um, did you find out like what they were spying for? Like, was it for that? I read that you were like at a specific meeting um, with some of the leaders in Belgium, maybe when uh, the, the spyware was yes. active. Yes. Um, so the spyware had been active um, continuously, really, from since January of 2021. Um, and one of the meetings I had with the Belgian foreign minister was entirely listened to from the moment I walked into the room, to the office of the minister, to the moment I walked out. And that was also visible in the forensics report by Amnesty International and a collective of journalists called Forbidden Stories. Um, so what we know, I think it's important for context in the way the one of the reasons they targeted me specifically um, and my family is that we have been advocating for my father. And the frightening part is that for all these years, for over 15 years, they have been the Rwandan government has been tracing my father and listening to his conversation and intimidating him and harassing him. So my fears were immediately what if this happens to me as well? Um, in that, what if I get kidnapped? What if I get tortured in the Rwandan prison and accused of false charges like my father was? And so this all started with the spying and the harassment and the intimidation. And this is the same things that they're doing to me. Um, and I also think it's important to go back a bit and tell the story as to why my father really became that target um, for the regime and why they started spying on him and targeting him because the sad part is that it's now trickling down to our my generation and my my siblings and i hope that my child my future children will not be dealing with this and that the regime would have changed but i think the origin is quite important for um to understand how we got here today so in terms of um as you know as i mentioned during the, the rwandan genocide my father saved 1268 lives and um after the genocide, many people ended up um, having to, many people, as the country was being rebuilt, as you can imagine, um, the genocide left 800,000 people dead. So almost a million uh, people in the country had been killed and the streets needed to be cleaned out and the country needed to be rebuilt. My father 
was a man of influence in Rwanda and was appreciated by both sides um, of the of the the country of the Tutsi, of the ethnicity. So Rwanda is composed of both Tutsis and Hutus, uh, two ethnic groups. My father is a Hutu who's married to a Tutsi. Um, and during the genocide, the the Hutu extremists were the ones who were doing the killing. My father decided not to join in any of the killing and instead protected and sheltered 1,200 people who were both Hutus and Tutsis. So after the genocide, he was seen by all the Rwandan people and the international community as this hero for both sides. The new government in power, the new dictator, um, did not like seeing that one other man had all this attention and had this respect of both sides. So that's when the assassination attempt started, when we were back in Rwanda in 1996. Um, and so that led my father and our family to flee Rwanda and move to Belgium. And in Belgium, um, we settled uh, in Brussels. My father um, purchased a car and started driving a cab. He needed to support a family of eight people. Um, and myself and my sister are um, his adopted daughters um, because both our biological parents had actually been killed during the genocide when I was one year old. And so he searched for us after the genocide, found us, adopted us, my sister and I, and raised us as his own children. So now he did not have a family of six. He now had eight people to take to care for. And so he drove around the taxi um, made um, a living this way until the producers of the Hotel Rwanda approached him and said, "We've learned about the story, your story. We've heard about what you've what you've done, and we want to make a movie about you." So they made a movie about him. And so my father then started speaking out a lot more publicly and internationally because now he had the platform, he had the attention. At first, the Rwandan government sent people to our house in Belgium to try to give jobs to my father, to um, anything that he wanted, ministership, ambassadorship. They just wanted him to be speaking on behalf of the dictatorship with his platform, which my father refused because he stood up for human rights. And he said that there needed to be a respect for those principles, um, even in Rwanda. And so that's when the the change really took place and they started attacking him and trying to discredit his role in the genocide, trying to take away his bravery by saying that it was a lie and that it had never happened. Um, and so they did this for over 15 years, followed him, tried to denigrate him and print complete lies in the media and make up charges about him in order to make him lose that credibility and that platform that he had gained all these years. Um, and so my father continued to speak out and not many people dare to do that in Rwanda. Most people in Rwanda who speak out end up dead, disappeared or, or um, imprisoned. And so my father had the attention that protected him from that all at that time until September of 2020, August of 2020, when he was kidnapped and also put in prison like many others who have dared to speak out. But Kagame, the president of Rwanda's biggest problem from the start had been that my father continued to speak out despite the attacks, despite the intimidations and despite the attempts on his life. And so fast forward to 2021, my father isn't sitting in prison after having been kidnapped. Now we are doing the speaking for him. We're speaking on behalf of, of my father, whose voice has been silenced in the same way that he was speaking out on behalf of all those whose voice had been silenced by the dictatorship. And so I find myself to be the target now and Pegasus being one of the first very clear example of that. So how do you even begin to protect yourself in 
situations like this? So it's difficult because clearly um, there is a concept called transnational repression um, that was advanced by Freedom House, an organization in in, uh, Washington, D.C., um, that talked about how authoritarian regimes go to great lengths um, to cross international borders, to go and repress critics, to intimidate people, to silence people. And so the concept of transnational repression means that they can reach you no matter no matter where we are you are and we fled rwanda in 96 we became refugees in belgium we became then belgian citizens and then later on i became an american citizen as well and so even despite the distance the length at which we did we went to leave rwanda to find a safe place they still came and looked for us and tried to intimidate us and silence us and so how do you feel safe? I think um, what has happened to my father has shown me that it's impossible to really to truly feel safe. And then Pegasus itself is, you know, a software, for instance, that you cannot tell once your phone is infected with the software. And so how do you protect yourself from something you cannot even tell exists? And so um, this is, um, it's a, that's a difficult question, but that's one as well that I don't have much time to, think through because at the moment, my biggest concern is to keep my father alive. My biggest concern is to call help for my father. And that involves being as public as I can about everything that's happening to him in Rwanda, as public as I can about the Rwandan dictatorship and its methods to silence and intimidate critics, because this all fits into a pattern that explains what's happening to my father. And once you understand that, then you can find the solutions and take the right action to remedy that, but also to save my father's life. So as frightened as I may be um, and as shaken to my core and to my bones, really, because of this whole ordeal that we've had to live through, um, we have no choice but to stay strong. We have no choice but to continue to speak out. Um, And I think my best example for this is that, again, if I bring it back to the genocide in 94, my father remained very brave for an entire 75 days as people were being butchered around the hotel. And he continued to maintain hope and he continued to speak for the people who were being sheltered in the hotel to protect them and did all his best until the really end. And so we will do all our best until the really end, um, regardless of the threats on our lives, but we'll maintain courage. Wow, good answer, and I respect that. It's uh, it's hard to imagine what you would do in, or if like if I were in your shoes, I have no idea how I would respond, you know. And so I'm, I'm I am curious about what's happening internally on your end, you know, like how do you feel about um, inheriting this this mission, um, and and all the bad things that come with it. But I'm also curious about your dad's mentality and maybe like where some of that hope and optimism and courage came from. So could you maybe touch on both of those things? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so I think um, part of what, I'm sorry, your first, what was your first question? My first question is about you specifically, like how you feel about inheriting this mission and all the bad things that come with it but also about your dad's courage and optimism and hope and where all of that may have come from in the first place. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I so those are two very good questions. Um, and I think that um, for my perspective, my my own feelings towards this is that, you know, I was one year old during the genocide. I was a baby, so I don't remember anything and I'm thankful for that. But I've had to carry the trauma and the weight of it throughout my entire life because of the, the trauma that a genocide is. Um, but I've also been so lucky that because I was a baby, I actually had and I grew up by the time I had, I think, my earliest memory as a kid. I was already running around to school in Brussels and Belgium, going to dance cl- uh, dance classes and or karate classes rather i got tired of dance classes really quickly um and um and so i uh and so my earliest memories is just that you know as being a kid being going to school with other kids and then going arriving in the us and just really living the most normal my parents tried to shelter us as much from the trauma that the genocide have brought especially at a young age that we just had a very normal life and so while that normal life was happening after the genocide um we also work every time we'd come home to spend time with our parents um i'd find that i could see the weight that um of the pressure from the rwandan government that he was carrying on my father and the way that he felt about the intimidation and the assassination attempts i could tell that he was worried but he always knew that he was kept alive for a reason that um, he he always says, you know, every extra minute that I have on this earth is a gift because I'm not supposed to be alive. And so he always said, I have to make the best of it. And so despite these attacks on him, we could tell that he had no intentions of giving up, speaking up for the people who had been silenced. And so we admired that. But then I'd go back to my life and I lived in New York and, and, and uh, was working in finance and was living my life. But then I'd come home and understand this heaviness that my father was carrying and so to some extent it feels like my life has been had been leading to this moment you know i too lost my biological parents and i was adopted by this amazing man who has been the best role model for me has given me all the love and now i am giving out that love i'm giving the love back to as much as i can with the lessons that he has taught me um and um and perhaps i'm alive for that reason perhaps i my biological parents were killed but i was saved so that i could be doing the work that i'm doing today to save my father's life and so yes i'd say my feelings are are strange surrounding all this because it's some days are very sad some days were just super worried and crying and 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 frightened some other days were empowered and and so much support around the world continues to 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 um to increase and so we feel good and then the next day we're back to feeling very sad and so it's a roller coaster um but i think again my entire life and my trajectory i think has led me to this moment where i think i have to be able to show the strength and the courage that um that um, that is required for 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 this situation um and to answer your quest, second question on, on my father and and how he gained the courage to to be the man he is today you know he's my father comes from a very poor family. He was born on the countryside of Rwanda. He was milking cows for his family as a kid. He was walking to school with no shoes and sometimes for days. And I'm sure all parents, all kids have heard their parents talk about walking for days to school. But my dad was serious. 
he did that with no shoes and back and come back to help his parents and he was always this kid who was just so excited about the opportunity to learn because his family had been so poor and so when as he got older and and was doing so well in school he um he was proposed he was proposed to actually be a theology to, to study theology because they thought that he could speak well and so and so he did theology but he realized that he actually enjoyed having fun he enjoyed going out and drinking and meeting women and so he said maybe religion is not for me <laughs> and so <laughs> he went into the hotel business and um into the the hospitality industry and uh, that's really where he found his calling. He's so much of a perfectionist where when you set the table, you know, you have to set the knife in the right place, the forks in the right places and and uh, everything has to be well aligned. And he just took that so well and so perfectly that he led his entire life on that following that perfection that he learned through the hospitality industry. And, um, and so I think what really where he gain gets all his strength and he i think he'll be the first person to say this is his own father because his father had also demonstrated the ethics of works the ethics of of um of uh, family of having good relationships with your family of speaking out for those who have been treated unjustly and he did that his entire life to the point that even today he's sitting in a prison because he spoke out for others and um and he will not give up because he has those that strong moral um that was instilled in him from his own father there's not many times where i'm actually speechless and it wasn't anything in particular that you just said, you know, like I, I was listening intently and, and I was very captivated, you know, don't get me wrong, but just talking about these things, you know, to someone who's making it real for me, you know, like it's easy to detach a little bit when it's just a story, but when you put a face to the story and you hear um, all of the things and thought processes and and the the history that goes into it, I just realized like how um, privileged I am and in so many ways. And I share your uh, optimism and your dad's optimism and your hope for the future and, um, you know, courage if need be. But uh, I often wonder like how much of that comes from not having experienced any like real, um, I mean, I've experienced hardship, don't get me wrong, but but to hear it firsthand from somebody who's, you know, experienced so much more hardship than I have, I'm just really like humbled and appreciative that we're even having this conversation. Thank you. Um, so when was the last time you talked to your dad? Yeah, so since he's been um, in prison, we've had the privilege of speaking to him for five minutes a week. Um, during those five minutes, he is not speaking at ease. He is being, um, there are guards around him who stop him when he starts to speak too much. Um, sometimes when we start saying too much, giving him too many information, for instance, so let's say last week this week um a resolution was um adopted in the u.s house foreign affairs and in trying to give him that news for instance they would cut 
off the phone early enough because they don't want us to give him all the information. And so um, those five minutes are are very precious to us because we get to hear his voice, but we also get to see that things are not well, um, as in his health is is bad. He's not um, he's not has not received his medication. He's a cancer patient and and has not um, a cancer in remission and has not had any screenings now for two years. And we're very worried that the cancer has come back. He's expressing arm pain, which we know can can be uh, linked to his heart. And so there are all these concerns, not only about his health, that we're able to get within those few minutes of the phone calls we have with him. Um, but he's also been mistreated since he's been in Rwanda. We've learned um, through a couple of our lawyers in Rwanda that um, they are um, that he was held in solitary confinement for over 260 days. You know, in when you're in solitary, you are. Um, it has a huge psychological impact on an individual. He has been held within four walls, without windows, without lights. Usually they will turn on his light only at 5 or 6 p.m. And so the rest of the time he was just sitting in the dark. Um, and according to the United Nations um, Nelson Mandela rule, holding, holding someone in solitary confinement for more than 15 days um, amounts to psychological torture. So it is actually a violation of the UN Nelson Mandela rules, which surprisingly very much the Nelson Mandela story altogether very much is similar to my father's story. I mean, he's being charged, the charges he's being accused of are of terrorism. He was made to go through a sham trial um, that was just to as a show for the public, for the, the amusement as well of the dictator. He um, is being imprisoned for his principles. So when we learned that the UN Nelson Mandela rule had also been violated, the similarities just continue to increase. And we hope that um, that my father stays strong, that he stays healthy. Um, he has never lost hope. He's never lost hope even during the genocide when he had every reasons to. Um, and uh, and so we hold, we continue to hope and pray that he doesn't lose hope because once he, if with everything that's happening to him physically and psychologically, um, once you lose hope, then you lose everything. And so we pray that the hope that he continues to to have it. Yeah. Um, have you ever read Man's Search for Meaning by any chance? No. So it's the tale, like a, a true story of a guy who went through the Holocaust. And I think you would find this book particularly powerful and moving because uh, the whole point of the book basically is finding meaning in whatever it is you're doing, regardless of how um, comfortable or uncomfortable it is. And I mean, your your father's situation is about as uncomfortable as it gets, but he seems to be holding on to the meaning in the, the situation, which can't have uh, been easy. You know, all these, uh, I mean, you said it was like eight and a half months or something in solitary. I, I can't even imagine like having a relationship with meaning at that point, let alone being able to hold on to it so tightly and and let it fuel you as you move forward. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to to throw that book out there because I'm always like recommending like, oh, by the way, have you read, have you read this book? What about this one? But um, I wonder if that might be of some use to you personally, because 
although you seem to be like um, very, you seem to have a solid grasp on your purpose and your the meaning of the the situation and all of that, but it could like reinforce it even further. Yes, I very much look forward to to researching the book and and reading it. And I I'm doing my best with the situation that's been that that is in front of me. But I think we're learning every single day and learning from other people's experiences is the best way to to move forward, I think. So any place that I can continue to, to learn and and and, uh, and figure out how to best navigate the crazy world we're living in, I, I welcome um, with my arms open. Yeah, so if you do end up reading it, let me know. I'd love to talk about it even more. And perhaps it's time for me to reread it too. Um, but has your dad shared any lessons with you recently or just things that he said that have really stuck with you? Yes. Um, you know, he's my father ha is very old school in that um, even in the way he talks, you know, sometimes he he speaks in metaphors. <laughs> so when we were little kids, we'd always have to just have a simple question for him and he'd figure out a way to bring birds into like <laughs> the answer. And we're like, what do you mean that? What are you actually trying to say? And so even now he continues to, do, to give us proverbs and speak in metaphors to try to have us make understand the meaning of, of things that we're, we're, we're dealing with. And, you know, one of the things he said recently over the phone is that um, time is our best ally and our worst enemy. And that, um, especially in the condition that he's in, you know, we know that every day is a struggle. Every day we have to, we rely, we need time to continue to rally support for him. But the time can also be hurtful because we don't know how much time he has considering his health. And so we're trying to make the best use of it. And um, and it's so, so profound of him to to tell that to us when he's the one who's between four walls and, and that shows the light that he has in him. Um, another thing he's, he often says, you know, is to never, ever do anything halfway. <laughs> and so and um, and whatever that we do to do it well. And that also comes from his hospitality world and the perfection that he, he wants things to be how he wants things to be. But um, but I think this also speaks to to the light that he has in him and that um, he's not losing hope. He's encouraging us as much as we're encouraging him. And um, and I used to love just sitting around um, at the end of the dinner with our family and just listen to my dad tell us stories about when he was young and when he do things and we don't get to to do this anymore because he's in prison. But I cannot wait all the energy we're putting into his release and to the efforts for his the campaign for his his liberation um, is I just cannot wait till I'm sitting around the living room and just listening to all the stories he has to share and being able to go back and tell my future children and tell my friends about exactly those lessons that I used to just close my ears to and now I just want to, to hear them. <laughs> So do you have any specific anecdotes, um, you know, that he has relayed to you from his childhood or or from the genocide, anything um, that you could share with us? Because I also want the experience of sitting around with your dad, like hearing his stories. That sounds amazing. 
Yes. Um, I mean, we've had the privilege of, of hearing so many uh, stories, you know, but I think one um, one that that marks him and that, that marked him the most, I think, especially during the genocide. Um, and that actually uh, recently, so I'll tell the story first, maybe. Um, basically, on May 3rd of 1994, it was in the middle of the, the genocide and they had figured out they figured out a way to evacuate some of the refugees who were sheltered in the hotel he um got a list he was able to get a list printed from the the un where with all the people who would be transported and taken to 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 another country taken to the airport and flown out of the country um, that day, he had he realized that if he left the hotel, um, that everyone would be killed because he was really the person standing be between the interahamways, the the killers who were outside, and the refugees inside the hotel. But he also knew that he had to stay because if he left, those people would die. But he also did not want his wife and children to stay there, so he made the decision to put everyone in the truck and say, you're leaving as well. And he kind of decided that in the very last minute. Um, he had discussed it a bit with my mom, but this was all final minute decisions. And so it was quite a shock when the trucks pulled out of the hotel. And then upon arriving in the, in the, the road, um, it got stopped by the killers. All the people inside the hotel and the, the trucks were were uh, hit and you know I think there is a scene of this in the movie in the hotel Rwanda as well if you if you remember watching it however what you see in the hotel in the movie is actually um, a version that is made for PG-13 so for people who are who are below 13 below in order to study it in schools but the reality is that everyone in that truck had been hit some had been killed some have uh, not killed had been dragged out and hurt even further and um eventually the truck you know returned turned around and went back to the hotel um they were able to get everyone safe but when the truck pulled away my father was still in the hotel and um the doors the, the gates closed and they started asking for they started mentioning in the radios at the time the names of my entire family and so as the people who were in the truck, along with all the other people who were refugees from the hotel who had successfully made it on the list. And so as my father was within the closed walls and gates of the Hotel de Milcolin, and he heard his wife and children's names being mentioned on the, by people who had the intentions of killing them, he lost it. He completely lost it and and felt like this was the end of the world for him and he had no control. He could not run out and go get them. He could not do anything. He was completely powerless. And, um, and he just felt like this was the end of the world. And luckily the truck came back and everyone got out. My mother had her entire back had was just bleeding because a, a man had just taken a big stick and hit her over and over again. And so my mom, my dad just held my mom as her body was bleeding from the, the, the beating that she had just received. And um, but this was um, the most shocking day of his life. And he remembers and I remember that date so specifically May 3rd because of how traumatic this was for him and the, the number of times he, he reminded this to us. But what's more frightening 
is that most recently, as we had just, as my father had been um, already kidnapped and taken to Rwanda, we still were trying to establish those five minutes communications with him, weekly communications with him. We still had not had any contact or really understood what was happening or what he was, what had happened to him. And on one of those early five minute phone calls that we had with him, he said, um, we asked him like, how do you feel? You know, dad, can you tell us, give us some clear answers because you, he could not speak freely with the guards surrounding him. And he said, you know, remember May 3rd, remember May 3rd, how I felt on May 3rd. And this just broke our heart because we knew that this is the worst day in my father's book, the worst day in his life. And he was saying that he felt the exact same way while being held in a solitary confinement in the prison cell in Rwanda. And so this is just one of the stories, but one of the, the heavy stories that really tell us, show the parallels of the, 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 the crazy days we were living in 1994 and the crazy days that we're living today in 2022 as my my father as a political prisoner of the one of Africa modern day Africa's worst dictatorship or worst regimes um the simil similarities are are striking but um we stay hopeful they say a one measure of intelligence is holding two equally important, valuable ideas in your mind and being still able to function. And I bring that up because I think there's this contradictory thing happening um, internally for you guys, where on the one hand, you've forgiven the perpetrators and um, Kagami, um, at least from what I've heard in your TED talk and from what I know of your father. Uh, you've both advocated for forgiveness. But there's also this flip side to the equation of like, we have to do whatever is necessary in order to bring about change in Rwanda. How do you even begin to hold those two ideas in your head at the same time? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... I think to me, um, in terms of forgiveness, you know, the importance of forgiveness is that the the wrong that was done to us during the genocide is a wrong that will we feel because, for instance, I I no longer have my biological parents, but it I do no I don't have to carry it the the pain with me all my life, and I think the forgiveness piece is allowing that weight to be lifted, you know, to not only be able to see the others and have a conversations with, for instance, the people, I've never had a conversations with them, but I, I have um, forgiven, for example, the people who have uh, forget, who have killed my biological parents because I realized that it was playing a bigger toll on me and my family and, and the people around me by, um, by consequence than if I forgave them. And then by forgiving them, I then realized that they were people too, and that they had their journeys and their difficulties. So I think part of forgiveness is both personal, but it's also a way to reunite, to bring society together forward. But then there is also accountability for what is being done and what was done. And I think 
you can um, ha calling for accountability and calling for an end to massacre, calling for an end to violence, calling to an, for an end to human rights abuses. That should be a priority because you can forgive, but if you if you if more crimes continue, then you'll have more forgiving to do. <laughs> and uh, if you can just stop it right there and stop it from continuing, because people do suffer. You know, we're talking about crimes of a dictatorship, but at the really bottom of this are the journalists who are being who are currently sitting in the prison cell next to my father because they just reported on what the government is doing. So this is something that. People feel directly, people are living through. And by not calling it out, by not asking for accountability, by not asking world leaders to stop entertaining events with dictators like Paul Kagame, we have to continue to speak out like this because otherwise this dictator will continue to do this. He'll continue to do what he did to my father, to others. They'll continue to spy on, on others like they've spied on me or to intimidate others like they've intimidated um, our family. And so really that's our responsibility. It's about calling for accountability, but at the same time, the forgiveness piece, you know, comes is part of the package. And I think um, is an important step to healing, but if we can <laughs> stop it before <laughs> before the, the crimes has been committed, then, um, then it's the, the best. Yeah. I talk to a lot of people who are interested in, um, you know, becoming a better professional. Like they, they were, they're interested in productivity. They're interested in pursuing their purpose, you know, and, and all of the um, things that I see as secondary, right? Like the first step is getting right with yourself. And I think there's a lot of parallels between like what I'm saying and what you're saying like you, I, I originally framed the question as like these being at odds, uh, you know, the forgiveness and the accountability. But after hearing your answer, I don't think they are anymore. Like they're both pointing in the same direction and one is re releasing that pressure and that um, hate and that anger so that you can do the thing that you really want which is the to provide the accountability the healing and the the good stuff which i think happens more naturally if you're able to uh, have less internal friction yes so you feel that the same way about that yes absolutely um you you've just said it very well it's i think um it makes it easier <laughs> it makes it possible and and uh you're right. One thing, one leads to another. It's, it's, they're not two separate things. And, and, um, and I think there's a lot of value in looking at it in one package. Yeah. And it's going to be so much more effective too, because if you're holding on to that anger, you're going to be much more reactionary and may not be able to think as clearly because you're caught up in all of the emotional side of it. So yeah, I really admire how you guys have been able to forgive and and openly advocate that other people forgive as well. Because some people, I think, may see that as uh, a form of weakness, which 
blows my mind because it's so much it's so clearly harder to forgive than it is to hate um but yeah like again you're you're advocating for that despite what people may say and and that seems to be something that you and your dad have in common you're you're really principled and you're determined to say these things despite how other people might perceive them Yes, thank you. Um, we're, I think the one very, very important thing to remember is that we have to be grateful. <laughs> we have to be grateful to be alive. And um, we know this because we came so close to, to death, you know, but so many people go through this. And also when we realize that we're not alone in this, um, these journeys, whatever your life is taking you through, you know, you're experiencing hardship, then at the end of that hardship, you'll get things will get better. And that's about that's how life goes. You know, things get better. We get hard things get, get better again. And so I think it's about resilience, about continuing to stand up, continuing to stand up and being thankful that we're able to stand up again, being grateful for the seconds, the minutes that we get more every day. Um, and so once we remember that that is the core, living is the core, then all the other worries are just little things. Mm -hmm. I'm hearing that like the underlying skill that threads these things together is maintaining perspective, which is a skill. Uh, you have to, to work at it constantly in order to maintain that perspective. So my question is, do you have any things that have been really helpful for you in maintaining perspective. And an alternative way of asking this is like for our listeners, do you have any tips on maintaining perspective that they might be able to apply to their own lives? Mm -hmm. Yes, I think uh, I would um, I would uh, say again what the what I just said earlier about just gratefulness. You know, I think once if we're grateful for what we have, once we when we count our bless, blessings, when we are grateful to be have another day on earth, then we um, we have that perspective that's needed to enjoy and to be productive and to be proactive with what we want because what the really core of what's important is life, and so. Um, yes, I think my advice to the listeners would be to continue to be grateful and continue to stand up for what you believe in, no matter what the adversary, the adversaries might, might bring, um, as long as you believe in what you do and stand up for what you, what you believe in um, and continue to be thankful for what it is that you have, then I hope, um, I hope this things will, will, I hope this is helpful. Oh, I mean, I can guarantee you it is already. Just just hearing these things is helpful. Um, so for you and, you know, people who experienced the trauma surrounding the genocide and having become or having gotten so close to death, it might be easier to remember to be grateful and to practice gratitude. But for those who haven't, experienced that sort of extreme do you have any like daily practices on on how to practice gratitude i mean there's there's so many ways that you can do it you know some people use mantras some people journal um and and just like write down things that they're they're grateful for is there anything personally that you use in order to foster that mentality 
think um, another way would be to inform oneself, right? The learning, uh, the learning piece, the education piece, where as we may not all be going through some trauma or the same hardships, but the fact is our neighbors are, our cousins are, our little siblings are. And so whether you're informing yourself about the wellness of your people around you, of your family and your, your community, or you're learning about another community somewhere around the world, like today everyone is learning about Rwanda, you know, just learning, informing yourself about how other people are living their lives and just that allows you to then look at yourself and say, wow, <laughs> I'm okay. You know, I'm, I'm grounded, I'm living. And so I think um, just informing oneself, going out to, to learn, to, to, be, um, to be the lifelong learner that we all should be. And, um, and so um, this gives you perspective. Um, so I think it's not about having to go through some hardship in yourself. I think it's just about learning from others who are. It's interesting you say that because we touched earlier on propaganda and how it's being weaponized against you and your family and your dad specifically. That makes informing yourself much more difficult. So this is a big question, but what is the strategy moving forward? Like, I know you have the overarching goal of freeing your father, but do you, could you give me some insight into the strategic planning that's going into it? Like uh, not only the process, but like what the actual action plan is? Yes. So, um, for instance, this week, you know, a resolution was was presented in the House Foreign Affairs Committee in the House of Representatives, and um, it will be moving to um, the full House floor. And so the next efforts will be just to ask everyone around the world, I mean, everyone around the U.S. who to call the representatives and ask them to um, to bring their support for my father, to to support the resolution on calling on Kagame and President Kagame to to let him go. So there are small efforts, those big efforts rather on different um, parliaments around the world calling for their support from a political level. Then there is a cultural level, right? You know, my father was made famous because of a movie, the movie Hotel Rwanda. And we know that we have the support of many um, people within um, the cultural world who are adding their voices and bringing, joining the campaign for his release. And so it's about how to um, get the information in front of the people, right? As you mentioned, propaganda is a huge problem and the Rwandan government has invested millions in propaganda, you know, in, in printing lies and the lies against my father to the point that when I put out a tweet, for instance, I've had a good 20 trolls who will come out after me to just try to either intimidate me to stop me from tweeting or to intimidate other people who are tweeting on behalf of my father or whoever is saying something in support of him. You know, there is a whole coordinated attack by the Rwandan government on this. And so um, part of the way to um, to uh, overcome that is to ensure that the true and right information is out in the public and that we'll be, we're sharing via all our friends who are posting the, the true story, who are telling what's happening today in Rwanda as we update them. Um, and so 
remaining really trying to stay close to the true story as possible so that people and take people away from the attention of the propaganda of the regime and the, the millions of things they're printing on a daily basis. Um, but the fact is, truth always wins. <laughs> truth always wins and we know this i believe this to my core and that's why i am not concerned i'm not worried so much that in the end my father um will win this in the end my father will come out alive and will come out even stronger than before because he's on the side of truth we are on the side of truth and however much uh, however much propaganda they print on daily basis will not hide away the truth and um, and so I think in the end, it's just about continuing to spread that truthful message. Do you think it's at all helpful to study Paul Kagame uh, as a person? You know, because they say when you're when there's like two groups fighting, it's really just two people fighting uh, whoever's leading each group. So the, the person leading one group uh should spend like a decent amount of time studying and understanding who it is they're fighting because that's really the key to dismantling the entire effort mm -hmm. so have you personally like looked into i don't know like does it help to study this man or or is it kind of like one of those situations where he's too far gone there's nothing you can do and in terms of like changing his mind because that's probably not going to happen. It's like a matter of working within those confines. But um, yeah, I'm just curious to hear what your thoughts are about that. Yes, no, I think it's always worth studying both sides of an issue, right? It's always very important to have both perspectives. The, the good thing too is that there are so much literature, so many things have been written about this current president because he's been accused of some of the most um, horrific crimes in in current modern history, as in, I think, in the Congo, over 3 million people have been killed since 1997. Um, and that is because Kagame has been sending his armies to steal the minerals that we all need, use in our phones. And those minerals are necessary for us to be speaking on our on our computers or on phones today. So we know that there is um, um, that there is uh, a lot of writings, a lot of academic uh, reporting and a lot of media reporting about who Paul Kagame is, I can give you the true story, despite the propaganda that he prints. Um, there is also a book by a woman called um, Michaela Wrong that is called Do Not Disturb. And it's really interesting because the sign, uh, I mean, the cover of a book is really the sign of the Do Not Disturb sign that you see at a hotel. And there is kind of a blood stain on it, like a fingerprint. And it really just that tells you perfectly what Rwanda is today is that there are all these things happening, all these reports by the Human Rights Watch, by all these organizations that detail the horrific things happening in the country, but no one is stepping in to disturb because of those minerals that we're all benefiting from, because no one wants to disturb this perfect cycle that we have going that allows the killing of millions of people in the Congo and in Rwanda. 
So the book Do Not Disturb really tells the perfect, uh, perfectly tells what um, who Kagame is, who he is as a dictator, why he acts this way, and his um, personality of trying to silence every critic or any man who's ever had any attention, like my father. Um, and um, and he really just goes into the mentality of of where uh, of a dictator really, and and says it out, uh, lays it out really well. So I think um, it's worth informing oneself. Um, maybe to change him, I don't know. I think we can always hope for dialogue. We can always hope that somebody will will get better, that things will change, at least for the in the, the, the interest of the Rwandan people who are suffering at the hands of this dictator. Um, but I think uh, in rather to understand, to try to understand his next move, to try to understand what he might do, what else he might do, how us will he harm his people so that we can prevent it. You know, for instance, um, Rwanda today is known as this economic miracle that came from the genocide and Kagame has raised the country, you know, but we're learning that a lot of those numbers that we see being reported in um, in uh, the economic um, reportings are actually fake numbers. And so then we're learning that there is something hiding there. He's hiding something over there. And then there's the other thing about people saying how clean the streets of Kigali, the capital of Rwanda is. But then when you have countless reports of torture happening at the hands of the Rwandan government, it's like entering a house that is clean and then you're hearing torture people being tortured behind the closed doors and you're pretending like everything is fine and you'll sit down in the living room and pretend to not to hear the, the, the screams and so that's what rwanda is today and so in order to understand the situation my father is in today in order to understand the situation the rwandan people find themselves in today it's important to really look at the full story and read the literature and read what people are writing and reporting what the the, the journalist who was jailed was writing about and so i think it it tells you the full story and it's important to to remain informed yeah i um often think about this quote from, I think it's Frederick Douglass, who said it's easier to raise strong boys than it is to fix broken men. And I think that's wow. really powerful and, and also very true. Because um, you could dive into, you know, like what made Paul Kagame, Paul Kagame, but he is a broken man and trying to fix him or change him is kind of a losing strategy. So you kind of have to work with that information. And I had this conversation the other day about uh, necessary conditions. And I'd never like really heard this phrase before. So, uh, but I, I gave it my best shot and tried to like sum up what I thought it was. And what I learned is like, uh, like a fire for instance needs certain things in order to exist you know you have to have air you have to have the fuel you have to have the ignition source and all of these things like absolutely have to be present in order for fire to occur and i thought this was interesting because i was uh, told this anecdote where this firefighter is fighting a forest fire and he's got like, you know, 10, 12 other firefighters with him and they're running uphill because they're being chased by this forest fire. And there's basically nothing that they can do, or at least it seems that way. And this guy who was the leader of all of the firefighters 
says, um, you know, like, come close to me. I'm going to light the the land in front of us on fire. And then we're going to lay down inside of the ashes of that fire so that this fire can't get to us. He removed one of the necessary conditions and therefore the fire couldn't exist. Like he removed the fuel. And because of that, he was able to lay down in the ashes and the the fire didn't get him, but it got almost all of his um, people because they didn't believe that that would work. So he ended up surviving and everybody else passed away because they wouldn't take the risk of, of lighting a fire on both sides. I mentioned this because I started thinking like, what are the necessary conditions for a dictatorship to thrive? And is there a way we can remove one of those conditions? And I say we, as if I'm like actually, you know, on the front lines fighting this with you. Um, But you know, I, I am with you in spirit and I want to help in any way that I can. And even if that's just, you know, like throwing these ideas out, uh, do you have any thoughts on like what those necessary conditions are and how you might remove one of them? Yeah, so I think um, free press is the most important thing. I mean, the not the lack of free press is what allows dictatorship to continue, right? The fact that people cannot express themselves. This means that people in Rwanda, even a man, a husband and a wife cannot tell each other the truth. Maybe they'll have to go under their sheets in their bedroom, close all the doors and make sure no one else can hear them before they can speak about anything. Um, because there is no freedom of expression, no freedom. And that means that the government can come and destroy your house and you'll never tell anyone. You'll never speak about it. You'll just, they might even tell you to destroy your own house and you will do it without ever speaking out because there is no free press. There's no opportunity to express oneself. And so, um, freely. And so, the fact is um that is a necessary condition that has allowed this dictatorship to go, go on for so long it's that they have virtually destroyed all of it to the point that every day more people get more journalists get put in prison just because they're expressing things that the one government doesn't want them to see so one of the things that we can do and this is everywhere in the world not people in rwanda or in the us so just belgium it's everyone can speak out on behalf of these individuals who are being wrongfully detained, who are being mistreated because they spoke out, because they used their 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 rights to the freedom of expression. And so by calling out, by speaking out for them, by making it possible to have a space for them to express themselves, by advocating for that fundamental right, that can change something because then there will be a real opinion and people can have conversations and change things, find solutions. But today there is no solution. You cannot find a solution unless it's death or prison. And so I think one of those important, um, the things that need to be made possible, the, 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 I guess the barriers that must be lifted in Rwanda is this ability to, um, uh, for the, the people to express themselves uh, freely. Yeah, I've done a lot of research and uh, studying on famous historical leaders 
and they all say that free speech and, and free expression is more dangerous than anybody with a hundred armies because the the secrecy and the the propaganda is one of those necessary conditions to, to maintain that level of control and i think i'm referencing napoleon specifically you know he's talking about how uh one newspaper is way more dangerous than someone with an army because they can then like choose to um, I mean, once they have the information, they can do whatever they want with it. And and the I think people lean towards the right decisions if they have all of the the right information. So yeah, by by destroying that one aspect of uh, a healthy modern society, mm-hmm. it it makes that impossible. Yes, exactly. Fortunately, that's the that's the situation today in Rwanda, and um, and I hope that um, that more people will will add their voices to this because um, the Rwandan people are repressed, and um, and uh, they need there are there they've been um, their voice have been taken away, they've been silenced, and one way we can help them get their voices back is by speaking out for them. Yeah, so in addition to calling our representatives here in the States, how can we help and how can we, you know, support you in this endeavor? Thank you. Thank you for for this question. And, you know, this is a global campaign and this is a campaign that requires everyone's support for it to succeed. And in addition to calling your representatives, you can also um, post about Paul Rusesa Begina on social media. We know the dictatorship tries to control social media. They try to control big tech as well, Twitter, YouTube, all these international, all these platforms that allow people to express themselves. So by going on your social media and tweeting um, at, for free Rusesa Begina or at free the hero with your support or calling on the president Kagame to let him go shows the support, shows him the support that um, is behind my father for his release. And um, and it truly would help in, in increasing awareness, raising awareness, raising attention on his case and perhaps your representatives or other people who have um, also a lot of influence on Kagame would listen to them and and let my father go. So everyone's voice matters um, in every shape and form. Um, it would be helpful to my to the campaign for my father's liberation. Cool. Uh, just for anybody who's hearing this and thinking about speaking out, um, just a, a heads up. I have mentioned. Paul Recessa Begina a couple of times on Twitter now. And the first time, I'm not, I'm not sure, I haven't checked my Twitter today because I just posted about him, but the first time I did get harassed by, um, you know, these people who are trying to control the narrative. So if you get people coming to you saying, you know, Paul Recessa Begina's a liar or a fake, whatever, like, be prepared for that, for one. And two, don't, um, you know, take whatever they say at face value, really dig into it, um, find out for yourself what actually happened, because I was completely unaware, as I said, that your father was in prison and being tortured and being held against his will. So whenever the 
three or four people reached out to me to like spew their uh, propaganda, propaganda bullshit. Like it was uh, very surprising for one, but then the secondary reaction was like, oh, maybe this actually is true. Like I only know of Hotel Rwanda, the movie and An Ordinary Man, the book. Maybe I've, I've been misinformed, but I had talked to you and I thought you were trustworthy and I like watched your TED talk and read some more about you and the whole situation. And, you know, it all came together. I'm like, oh, okay. So these guys are definitely propagandists. Um, <laughs> but I, I just wanted to give a word of warning to anybody who hears that message and decides to act on it because there might be those people trolling you in the comments or hitting you up in your DMs trying to, to skew the narrative in their favor. Yes, don't be don't be intimidated for sure. And it's um it's an all coordinated campaign by by the government to just to silence anyone. So don't let them silence you. Yeah, it was uh something I'd never really experienced before. So I was kind of, I mean, I wasn't scared, but I was like concerned. I was like, wait, am I saying something like egregiously wrong on on Twitter right now? Then you know, once that was gone, I'm like. I'm, Am I going to like keep getting harassed if I keep talking about it? I don't know. It's just something that I don't normally encounter in my day to day life. Yeah, it's a natural reaction. And, and it also shows how effective they are, <laughs> how effective they are at, at really getting people to rethink their, their support. And that's why we need all the support possible, because they are successfully lying to people and making sure that they get afraid to speak out on behalf of my father again so definitely don't feel intimidated it's just the pro the dictatorship trying to silence you too yeah it was it was interesting what i was reading like right before we hopped on this call because the things that they're saying are really kind of minor like they're trying to claim uh, you know they got a few people that were present um, during the genocide at the hotel to say, and I'm sure they were bribed or threatened or whatever, to say that uh, your dad threatened to kick people out if they didn't pay their bills for the hotel and a bunch of like really small seeming uh, lies because the, the purpose of those lies is just to get you to doubt. It's not really to change your mind all in one fell swoop it's to say, maybe I am wrong. And as soon as that seed of doubt is planted, the other lies that are added on top of it make it grow even stronger. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's tricky stuff. Uh, very, very deceptive. But um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I understand the, the struggle. Holy crap. Yeah, I, I feel so much, uh, so much better about the situation now that I've talked to you face to face and, and you're hopeful and upbeat and, and keep fighting the good fight. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today and to all of our listeners. And I would love to do this again sometime <clears throat> if you're up for it. Um, do you have any final words before we hop off? 
No, thank you. Thank you so much for for uh, for sharing my my father's story with your with your listeners and for being willing to go into this complex, messy story of <laughs> dictatorship in the center of Africa. Um, so thank you for the, the opportunity and thank you to everyone listening for the support that we, I hope you will bring us and for for listening to to our tragic story. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much. I look forward to continuing this conversation and following the journey and see how it all plays out. But just know that, you know, I'm with you and I'll do everything that I can to, to help out, even if that's just calling my representatives. And I hope everybody else will do the same. Again, thank you. And I will talk to you again soon. Thank you, Trace. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.